The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joe Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 7200. That's 72000 and download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 7200 for your copy now. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. In times of crisis, do you worry whether or not your people are going to stand by you and stay with your company? To find out how the best companies do it and how they keep their people engaged and by their side, Greg Ward. Greg, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Joel. Hey, well, nice to uh, nice to have you join us. So, um, when something is going bad for a company, and you know, and things are always going bad. Sometimes they're going bad now. Sometimes they're going bad in the future. But when things are going bad, what are things that make employees stay with a company as opposed to just run for the hills? That's a great question. And hopefully, before things have hit the fan, as they say. The organization has invested in creating the kind of culture where people feel respected and trusted and not commanded and controlled all of the time. Uh, when a crisis hits, what tends to happen is, is leaders, uh, you know, it's all hands to the pumps. Everybody, come on, let's get together and figure out how to deal with this. Uh, the problem there is uh, the leaders tend to to shunt respect to one side and and decency and, and and civility to one side. But what all of our research is telling us, and all our work with with companies uh, around the globe are telling us that if you treat people with respect from the get go, when the going gets tough, they'll get going and they'll stick with you. They'll be resilient. They'll be loyal. But if you don't treat them with respect in, in the normal times, what's eventually going to happen when times get tough, they're going to look around and go, well, you know what? This company isn't loyal to me. It doesn't treat me with respect. I'm going to go find a place where the grass is greener. I'm going to go look on the other side of the fence where I can go and feel like I'm part of something special. Well, I mean, look, it's really kind of hard for me to understand that there are companies that don't do that. And I know that there are lots and lots of companies are most of the companies that are disrespectful, are they privately owned companies or do they tend to be publicly owned companies? Is there, is there any difference or is it across the board all the time? 
That's a, another great question. I, I can honestly tell you, Joel, in my experience, I've worked with privately owned, small, big, large uh, companies uh, that that have great cultures. Uh, then, I, and and I have with public companies as well. So I can't say that they're uh, that that makes the difference. I would say the real difference is in the intentionality of the leaders, the folks at the top of the organization who are driving the culture, if their intention all along is to create a collaborative partnership uh, amongst the, everybody in the organization, doesn't matter whether they're private or public, they're going to thrive, they're going to do well. But if it's all about, hey, let's make a quick buck, let's go to market with whatever we got and promise the moon and maybe deliver halfway and that's okay because I'm going to sell off or I'm going to bail out of this situation in, in the near future, then that's going to itself down into the organization, whether it's public or private. So I don't think that's the, the, the dividing line. I think it's more around the intentions of the people in charge. Yeah. Well, what about a long horizon and a short horizon? Um, you know, I mean, uh, companies with a long horizon must line up with this kind of a philosophy. That's been my experience. I think we're seeing more and more these days that companies that, that have that short-term outlook and are really only going for short-term goals, you know, there'll be a flash in the pan. You, you, they'll, they'll make a big hit. But if they don't have a long-term strategy for sustainability and regenerative processes, they're not going to last very long. Yeah, sure, the top folks may, you know, may make a lot of money and then get out. But that's not, you're not going to have a company that's going to last and transform itself over time into a solid brand that stays and stays and stays. So you've got to plan for the long haul. Do you find that companies that treat their uh, employees with less than uh, excellent respect do the same thing with other people in their world, other, sh- other stakeholders like customers, vendors, shareholders? Absolutely. What we have found over and over again is if you treat your people with respect, they will treat your vendors, your customers, uh, your community with respect as well. But if you don't, they're going to be the same way. So if the, the old saying is, I've forgotten who started this saying, maybe it's Peter Drucker or somebody else said, you take care of your people and your people will take care of your customers. That's been our experience. But you know, even, even, even beside what the customers do, uh, do you find that leaders who don't do a good job with people don't also do a good job with all those other people? I, I agree. In other words, the, the, the customers, the shareholders and other people. Yeah, you know, you could have this charismatic genius leader who just understands the marketplace and and has positioned the products really, really beautifully well. But behind the scenes, you've got the infighting and you've got all the issues coming up and it's just exhaustive and draining. And I don't know anybody who wants to work long-term in that kind of environment. It's it's just too exhausting. So I think you're right. I, I, I think, you know, there can be a, a, a flash in the pan kind of leader, but if eventually it's going to come out that if they don't have the kind of people skills that will sustain the organization, it's not going to hold up. It's not going to keep going. So... What is the formula? Is there a formula, you know, for this sort of thing? The formula is something I call, and it's kind of trite sounding, but the, the seven respectful do's. The things that any good respectful leader would do on a daily basis, both at work and at home and in their lives, that really make a difference in terms of people feeling respected. It's as simple as saying things, Joel, like please and thank you. 
instead of barking orders, say, would you please be able to do this for me? And do it genuinely. And when they do it, say, thank you. I appreciate you. That's a simple thing. Can I interrupt you for one second? I am terribly worried about the words please and thank you in our society. Fair enough. I'll tell you why. Uh, Alexa, do this. Alexa, do that. Do this, do this, do this. this. (laughs) And we are barking out orders at our computers. And I worry that we're going to start barking out orders to each other the same way. I, and, and I'm not kidding about this. I mean, I, I, mean, I really wonder if, if Amazon could install a little something that said, Alexa, please do this instead. <laughs> because I'm telling you, it, it's, it's, to me, it's really a problem. I, I think you're right. One of the other things I've noticed is that folks who come from a command and control environment, either growing up in a household where uh, I, my father was a Marine and his, his, you know, when he said, do it, you did it. And that was just it. Uh, there wasn't much please and thank you there, but he was a great dad. I would never take that away from him. Uh, but the, the old command and control style, such as people who were formerly in the military, where that's appropriate, that's fine. Uh, but in these days, uh, without treating people with a little bit of respect, they're, they're going to resent it. And, and, and you need to, to treat people in a way that not only you want to be treated as, as, a, as a leader and as a human being, but also in the way they want to be treated. It's something called the platinum rule. You may have heard about it. it the golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We all know that. The platinum rule is do unto others as they would have you do unto them. And that means you as a leader making an effort to find out about what motivates your people. I know people on my team, they don't need the please and thank yous. They just want to be told, hey, here's the goal. Go to it. I'll see you when you're done. I've got other people who really thrive on the please and thank yous. I've got to figure that out. And that's my job. That's what I get paid the big bucks for. Yeah. All right. So what's number two? You got a second one in your list of seven? I sure do. Yeah. It's number five. Get your shift together. Now, shift happens to all of us, and you got to manage it well. And what I'm talking about is if you're a leader in any organization, people are coming to you with problems. That's kind of your job is to solve problems. And if you allow your emotional shift, your responses to those problems, especially big negative problems, if you let yourself get out of control, everybody's going to pick up on that. And people sense those emotions, and they actually also behave negatively as as well. So negative emotions are very, very uh, contagious in the workplace. So one of the things I try to coach leaders on is getting their shift together. That means, I don't know, meditating if you need to, going outside, run around the building for a little bit, or go curse into a pillow or something. But try to manage those negative emotions so that they don't infect everybody else. What we want in our leaders is people who are calm, who are focused, who are understanding, who are good problem solvers, but aren't necessarily going to just throw their negativity all around the organization. You know, just sitting here listening to you, I'm sitting thinking about what leaders do I have confidence in and which leaders would you not? And if somebody was was losing it, they were they were just absolutely losing losing their drawers over over a problem. You know, you're you're thinking this person doesn't know what what to do next, you know, and and they're absolutely not going to get it right. But if somebody is cool, calm, collected, they've got a plan, uh, you know, uh, Listen, here's what we're going to do. Step one, two, three, and four. I've been down this path a hundred times, or I've got an advisor that has, uh, you know, going, wow, I, I think we're going to be okay. 
and, and yeah, that's exactly right. Even if you don't have a plan, you could say, folks, we're going to figure this out together. Let's work together and, and come up with a plan instead of, instead of winging it and, and pushing through. If you do have a plan, if you have been through it before, that's great. But if you don't know, admit it, acknowledge it, saying, I'm not sure how we should handle this. What do you all think? Let's see if we can come together and figure this one out. That's the sign of great leadership. What about decisiveness? Making a decision and not waffling. Is that one of them? Uh, I, I, absolutely. You know, in my experience, I've worked with senior executive and major large corporations all over the world for, for 25 years. I can tell you there's no shortage of decisiveness. What I would often say is that sometimes leaders who are, you know, alphas, they, they drive, they're problem solvers, they work quickly. Sometimes they go too fast. They're too decisive. They don't take enough time to slow down and analyze and get different perspectives. And that's great. Our, our business world is fast and furious, and we got to move fast and furious. But on the other hand, if you don't slow down sometimes and look at different perspectives, you could miss something that's a key to your survival, and you could blow it big time. So I've never noticed a lack of decisiveness. I've actually noticed a lack of slowing down and, and seeing different perspectives. So you don't, you don't see that waffling after making a decision is a big problem. Like you decide A and then you go, well, you know, I don't know, maybe it should be B instead. Or <laughs> I, you, don't, you don't notice that to be a big problem? I think the smart leaders uh, will, will think through and through before being decisive and then uh, stick with the plan. Uh, as uh, you know, if uh, obviously if exigent circumstances come up and things come out of the blue, you're going to say, okay, folks, hang on. We got to go to plan B here. But generally speaking, once you make a plan and once you, 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 you execute, start executing, you should follow through. And waffling sends a big message that you aren't sure. And that's contagious as well. So at the end of the day, uh, I, I would always say, yes, be decisive, execute on your plan, but make sure you planned thoroughly and to always have a plan B. I'm not one of those people who says never have a plan B. A plan B is a plan to fail. I don't believe that nonsense whatsoever. I think a plan B is a good way to, to, to survive. You know, uh, if somebody ever uh, asks the question about waffling, I, I always tell them, um, take your teenage kid teach him how to make a left turn on a busy highway and say, uh, you know, do you think you should be decisive here or should you waffle about your decision? You know, I mean, I don't think any of us, uh, when you, when you look at it like that, I think it's pretty crystal clear. So, right, so these are all things that great leaders do. Let's talk about respect. You talked about respect in the very beginning. Um, how does respect play into all this? How, how does somebody create respect? Where does respect come from? Sure. Well, so is it like, I'm the boss. You better respect me. No, you know, there's a there's a mythology out there that just because you hold a title and position, you are owed respect. In fact, what all our research tells us is that if you demand respect of your subordinates, they actually will respect you less. Instead, I believe it's the leader's job to earn the respect of the people who work for them. And that comes through understanding one critical thing that I think a lot of people don't know. Respect is not cognitive. It's not a rational thinking process. It actually is a, an emotional process. If you think back to a time in your work life, go back in your life, and I, I specifically recall working with one senior executive who worked his way all the way up to the C-suite over 20 years. When he had first joined the organization, people treated him like crap. 
Their attitude was, is you've got to pay your dues. You've got to do the, all of the scut work. Get over it. That's how we came up through the organization. You've got to be the same way. Well, when he finally got to the leadership role and he had the same kind of attitude of forcing all the newbies to be, uh, you know, doing all the scut work and, and, and just pay their dues, well, they were bailing ship. All the great people that he had brought on board and were just saying, screw that. I don't need that. I'll go find a place where I'm treated with respect. I'm valued for what I bring to the table. So he came to me. He's like, what do I do? What, what am I doing wrong? This is the way I was, came up through the firm. This, this was the culture I was trained in. I said, you know, what do you want? You want to keep your good people or are you going to let them keep revolving door? And you know how expensive that is. He goes, I know. And so at the end of the day, what we started working on is letting go of the old paradigms that you've got to uh, 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 earn, your, earn your keep and pay your dues and put up with all sorts of nonsense in order to be considered somebody who is going to be a leader in the firm. Instead, come from a place of respect and understand that the, that the emotional responses you had to respect or, more importantly, to disrespect will stay with you your entire life. He remembers how, how he went home and talked to his brand new wife and he said, I want to quit this place. I can't stand this place. They treat me like dirt. And she was encouraging him at that time to, to stick with it because they had a new family and, and he needed the job. Well. In many cases, people are saying, you know, I don't have to put up with this. I bring a lot to the table. And so he had to change his paradigm. He still had the pain. 25 years after he started, he still had the pain of being disrespected in his heart. And once we explored that a little bit, he goes, gosh, I never want to put somebody through that. And I said, bingo, that's the change that needs to happen. You know, it's it's just so hard for me to understand this. I mean, I, I I I know that it happens. Sure. My internal response is so different. And by the way, this is exactly the same with parenting. Yeah. Parenting's the same. Yeah. I mean, if you were treated badly, you know, like when I was at uh, Price Waterhouse, the youngster, it, it was a pretty rough environment. You know, is you know, uh, it was a largely male dominated environment. There were women coming in at the time. Uh, you know, at least at the lowest levels, it was about 50-50 when I was kind of entering. But, you know, it was it was like a fraternity. Yep. And they would they would make yep. you pay your dues. And, you know, it just it was just a rough environment, you know. And, and I remember like, I don't like this environment. I'm not going to create this environment in my own company. Or I didn't like being parented this way. I'm not going to do it this way. Exactly. What is it? What's going on for people that they say, I didn't like it, but I'm going to do it anyway? I mean, I mean, what is going on for a person that would that would can reach that conclusion. I think it's a sense of pride. I survived. I survived it. And uh, it, you know, the old saying, what, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. I, I, it actually also adds a whole bunch of emotional scars. But at the end of the day, a lot of people who continue that kind of culture and that kind of behavior are saying to themselves, I'm tough. Uh, you should be too. So I'm going to put you through the same crap that I went through and that'll make you tough too. And I think that's where they're coming from. But I appreciate what you said about you didn't want to create that kind of culture. So somehow you knew that that just wasn't right. That wasn't healthy. And by the way, I served as a consultant to Pricewaterhouse during the, uh, during the 90s. And uh, it was a, a huge transformation right before Coopers and Librand uh, bought them, basically, uh, took them over. And uh, it, I was part of the whole transformation, the global transformation of the, uh, of the IT group. 
So it was a fascinating time. You know, it. Uh, I just, to me, it's like, uh, I, I think that sometimes we have to be tough with kids. We have to be tough with sure. employees. But at the, but at the same time, it, it may make people stronger, but it doesn't make them better. I agree. And, and I think that there's kind of a, a balance of, of stronger versus better. And, you know, we're not living in the caveman days. Uh, I don't want people to be too soft. I want them to be able to stand up on their own two feet. But I also want them to uh, be able to be compassionate and good people and it's kind of a bad, I think life's about balance, like everything else. You got to balance. So what, um, so what are, what are great companies doing? I mean, I mean, if they see, uh, are, are, if they see somebody that's uh, like one of their managers is kind of out of whack, uh, you know, are they getting them coaching? Are they, are they just terminating these people? Are they investing more in them? How are they helping people to, to stay on the, the better track or, or are companies what? doing a good job of this? I think the good news is that more and more we're realizing that coaching is extraordinarily helpful. There was a time where no one wanted to admit that they had a, a, an executive coach uh, because they were afraid everybody would interpret that there's something wrong with them, that they needed to be fixed, and so on and so forth. And, and I think that stigma is going away nowadays. I think it's still there in some ways, but uh, most of us who have been coached were like, thank goodness I got coaching because it helped me uh, change my behaviors really much more faster than I could have on my own. So I think more and more organizations are realizing how valuable coaching is. Uh, the question is, are you doing it uh, purely to provide what's called an affirmative defense before you fire somebody uh, in order to go up in front of a judge and say, hey, your honor, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't have to be uh, settled with this guy uh, on a lawsuit. Uh, uh, we did our best. And I, unfortunately, a lot of uh, companies do use coaching in that regard to protect themselves. But the ones who really care about their employees in my opinion, we'll always give them a shot. We'll always give them the opportunity to change it and make it better. I'm not a fan of what's called the one-strike rule, the, uh, the no-tolerance rule. I, I, think that's, I think that's too extreme. I prefer the two-strike rule. You screw up once, okay, we're going to give you a good hard talking to. We're going to invite a coach in to work with you, and we're going to expect you to change. You screw up a second time, okay, now we're talking termination or at least putting you on a performance improvement plan. You follow through with that kind of stuff, and if a culture really means what it says when it does that, then I think you've got a culture that really serves its leadership and everybody in the organization well. You, uh, first, how often, and second, how do you deal with this problem? Companies that state their values and they don't live their values. Yeah, they don't walk their talk. Yeah, so so how do you, number one, how do you identify it? Number two is, is it prevalent? I mean, is it a big problem? I'll, I'll reserve my own opinion. And, you know, and, and, and then what do you do? Let's, let's talk about that for a few minutes. That's a good, great question. When a client approaches me and wants them to work with them, I'll be honest with you, I do a lot of research before I even get involved with them. I'll go to Glassdoor which is a great resource for finding out what people are saying about the culture. I'll try to find people that I know or people who know people who work or have worked at that organization, try to get a sense of the culture and what's going on there, hear the stories before I even have that initial meeting with them. And then right from the get-go, when I have my first initial meeting with an organization, I'm going to say, 
is something up? Is that why you're calling me? Have, have you got a lawsuit on your hands? What's going on? Or are you trying to be more proactive? I'd like to say that companies are calling me because they want to be proactive. Unfortunately, I would say more like 70% of them are calling me because something's up. They've got a problem that they should have dealt with earlier, but they didn't. And now everybody's freaking out and they go, oh, we need help now. So, and it depends. I'll help them if I think I can make a difference. I, I, I can tell you a couple of years ago, I got approached by a financial institution. I won't name names, but uh, they were struggling. There was a major merger that went on and one was a very dominant culture and the uh, subservient culture got got rolled over basically. And the employees and the leadership felt really, really disrespected and rolled over. And uh, so, but so the turnover was horrific. The complaints were horrific. The customer service was terrible. And they originally brought me in. They said, okay, help us fix our customer service. Well, after a few discussions and, and research, I found out that's not the problem. The customer service is not that's, the problem. That's the, that's the symptom. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so what we did is I, I went directly to the CEO and I said, I need a private closed door conversation with you. I said, here's what I think is going on here. You guys haven't dealt with your issues, which is people feeling disrespected in, over the course of the merger. Are you willing to openly discuss those issues? It took him a long time of breathing and focusing. And finally, he said, it's going to be rough, isn't it? And I said, yeah, you want to save this organization? It's going to be rough, but it's going to be worth it. And he's finally said, okay. And I said, now, who can you get on your C-suite team who's going to be aligned with you in this? Because I know some of them are not going to like this whatsoever because people are complaining about them. He said, okay, we'll assemble the team of people who are aligned with me on this. Took us a long time. It took us longer than I thought it would. But we started having those conversations. You could hear pins drop at first, but eventually we started having those conversations. We started talking about respect and changing the culture across the board. It took a lot of effort. People left. People were upset. There were tears. There was anger, anger, frustration. But I think over time, we were able to turn the corner. And if it hadn't been for the CEO and a few of his direct reports who said, yes, let's do this, it would have never happened. You know, um, well, first of all, you know, in a, in a merger and acquisition situation, there is no such thing as a merger. You know that, no, right? No, sir. Never happens. <laughs> there <laughs> the are only thing. acquisitions. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and and I, I guess that, you know, but now you got to meld two different uh, cultures together. And that that is a big problem. Right. Uh, you know, but uh, one one's going to survive. One's not going to survive. Uh, and there's going to be turnover and I would imagine probably a good idea to talk to an advisor on that topic, somebody like yourself, before the merger happens, exactly. not after it's too late, to kind of exactly. start doing some pre-get-together, uh, pre uh, you know, I don't know, work, whatever that looks like. I've been involved with mergers where it made perfect sense on paper. The numbers penciled out. It looked great on paper, but the cultures were so radically different from each other that it, they couldn't do it. it. It couldn't work. And all the numbers people are like, oh, look at those numbers. It's going to be great without even thinking for one minute about getting people to work together who have never worked together before. I wish I had more companies coming to me to say, hey, we're going into a merger. What can we do to ensure our cultures merge well? I don't get that. It's usually after the fact. And they you know, realize so often uh, people yeah. just 
forget that business is not about money and numbers. Business right. is about people and people make money. Exactly. And, you know, and it really, it just, it's kind of what it is. And, and that really, that's the inside track to this whole deal. And this whole podcast is about the inside track, the inside yes. track to, you're talking about respect and getting along and delivering good service and all the other things. And if people are miserable on the inside, then it's going to radiate on the outside. I mean, that's the inside track to, to this and how to solve these problems and how to get in front of these kinds of things. So, and if know, I, do you mind if I add something, Joel? Yeah. Uh, I, I love your metaphor of the inside track. I think it's right on target. And people often say to me as my work is in respect and, and what I call respectful leadership. I've written a book about it and I, I do workshops and programs and coaching about respect. And at the beginning, people always say to me, oh, you just want me to be nice. And the answer is no, it's not about being nice. It's about treating people in a way that they perceive as respectful. You can be very direct and give somebody some very good direct feedback in a way that no one would say is being nice, but they would say it was being respectful. And that's the key difference. You could be nice all you want and people may not respect you for it. But if you treat people with respect in the way they want to be treated, even if you're blunt and to the point, they will get it and they will respect you in return. That's the difference. Well, so a couple of things. One, we didn't really talk about what, what it means to deliver uh, something in a respectful way which you said is not necessarily a nice way. And we don't, we don't have to teach people how to not be nice and respectful. The <laughs> art of doing that is, uh, that's a special thing. But, um, you know, I'll tell you, for example, uh, I like to fool around, joke around, uh, you know, but I never make fun of people for things that they can't help. You know, like if they comb their hair funny, that's fine. But if they don't have any hair because their hair doesn't grow, I, I would never, ever make fun right. of a person for something right. that isn't their fault. Right. And, and that's kind of where I personally draw the line. Now, there still could be people that get all bent out of shape about things. But to me, being nice and respectful is making sure you don't cross a boundary. But the one thing I heard you say just now is that it's not what I deliver. It's what they receive. Correct. Correct. How do you deliver feedback or how do you give instruction or how do you set goals in ways that people can hear it? I think you're right on target when you say you don't want to cross that line with somebody and, and uh, make fun of or attack something that they can't help. So in, instead, you want to talk about what they're good at, go, go for their strengths. And, and if they need to improve upon something, that's fine. You could say, look, here's where I think you can improve. improve. I think you have the understanding and knowledge of this to make a difference here. Go for it. Let's go. Uh, and you you can be very blunt and direct about that. But when you get into personal attacks and calling people stupid or they don't understand and they never will and all that kind of belittling kind of stuff, that's unnecessary and people will shut down. They're not going to listen to you then. Yeah. Well, to me, uh, not only are they not going to listen, but it just it says a lot about you as a person that you're just not a high level, high quality person. Because yep. I don't think that high-level, high-quality people uh, do those things. And that's... I agree with you. Unfortunately, we got a lot of people in leadership roles who don't care about that stuff. And they just, they just are so focused on my way or the highway that they kind of go, well, why are people not doing things? Why are people leaving? Why am I losing my, my, my best people? Well, 
because you're not listening to them. You're not treating in them in a way that they feel respected. And let's let's wind down one one last topic. Uh, are there differences in leadership styles? If you are, are, is there like sales leadership? Is there corporate leadership? Are, are there different styles or different rules for different kinds of segments in an organization? Or is leadership leadership and it doesn't matter? I think in my experience, and I actually started when I, I started as a trainer, I was a trainer in the New York City Police Department. And one of the things I very quickly realized that if, if cops treated people with respect, including cops who reported them, sergeants, lieutenants, captains, that they treated their people with respect and they treated the public with respect, even hardened criminals, treat them with a modicum of respect, what generally happens, you get more cooperation, you get more resilience, you get more loyalty. So, I think leadership boils down to you either treat people with respect or you don't. And I think it's as simple as that. I don't, I don't think it matters if you're in sales, in accounting, in marketing. I, I don't think it matters. I think it fundamentally is your worldview. Do I treat people with respect no matter who they are and in a way they want to be treated or don't? And there, you know what? There are plenty of leaders out there who have been very successful for themselves and maybe for their companies by treating people like crap. Yeah, I, I will never say that, that there aren't people who, who don't, aren't successful with that leadership style. It's not a style I want to work with, and it's certainly not a style I want to give. And all the research is telling us that more and more people are becoming less tolerant of that kind of leadership style, that what we call command and control, uh, do as I say because I'm your boss, or carrot and stick. Do as I say and meet the goal, you'll get rewarded. But if you don't, you're going to get punished. Those two leadership styles, I think, are passe. I think they're gone. They're still out there. We still experience them. But I don't think they're nearly as effective anymore as people think they are. And that's the inside track on how to run a respectful organization with lots of loyalty. And uh, Greg, thank you very much for being a guest on the show. Really appreciate you being here today and uh, sharing your insights. Thank you very much for having me on and, and for giving me the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Glad to have you. Well, listen, we'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joel Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 72000. That's 72000. And download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 72000 for your copy now. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.